Jesus said in Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world, the whole world. I'm thankful tonight that your pastor and uh, many of you as well have a, have a heart for the world. Uh, it's not natural to have a heart for the world, is it? It's not natural to love people and care about people that we don't know. It's natural to love people that we know, uh, that, that love us and we, we, our family, our friends, and, and our own city perhaps. But if we're going to be like Jesus, we really have to have a heart for the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so to have a heart for the world, I want to just talk to you about that for a few moments tonight. And, and what would it take to have a heart for the world? What is it going to take for us to be able to honestly say, I have a heart not only for, for this city and for my people I know, but people I don't know, other countries and other lands and other nations, and people that, that uh, they're, they're not exactly like me. They have different culture, different language, different, different uh, everything. Um, <clears throat> what would it take to have a heart for the entire world? I want to give you tonight just four simple words. Number one is look. Number two is pray. Number three is give. Number four is go. These four simple words, I think, represent the four elements that we must have in our life if we really want to develop a heart for the world. Number one, the word look. John chapter 4 and verse 35. In John chapter 4 and verse 35, here's what Jesus said. He said, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. We must be willing to slow down during our busy lives and take the time to deliberately look. We have to do this on purpose. We have to on purpose do it. That's what you do in this missions conference. We are we're taking time out of our lives, and you're taking time out of your schedule. You're giving up these nights, and you're coming and deliberately looking. You're seeing the, the, the videos. You're hearing about the stories. You're, you're hearing about and you're seeing, about, seeing people that, that uh, are on, these, uh, on this reservation, that the Hopi uh, tribe, that, that they don't live like you. Uh, they live totally different from us, yet they're in the same country, but they live differently. We're taking the time to deliberately look. Now, vision is the beginning place of being used of God. Proverbs 29:18, the Bible says, Where there's no vision, the people perish. Lamentations 3:51, Mine eye affecteth my heart. For us, my wife and I, our ministry concentrates on an area often called the 1040 window or the 1040 region. The 1040 window is that rectangular area, as we talked about last night a little bit in the video. It's that rectangular area of Western Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, approximately from 10 and 40 degrees north latitude on a world map. That's the area that we're attracted to. This area is often called the resistant belt. And it contains the, the, the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists live in that part of the world. Over 5 billion people live there. The thing that draws us to that part of the window, a part of the world, that 1040 window, is the fact that it is the least evangelized portion of the world. Most of the countries in the 1040 window have less than 2% of their population that profess any kind of Christianity at all. Think about that. Less than 2%. Under 2%. They would profess any kind of Christianity. I don't know how many people are in. I don't. I don't know what the the the, the uh, uh, percentage of people in America that would truly be born again. Uh, I read an article a while back that said 80 percent of people in America claim to be have a Christian background. They claim to be Christian. Now, I don't think for a second that 80 percent of people in America are saved. I don't think that. I don't think three out of four people in America know the Lord and they're generally born again. 
But 80%, a high percentage of people profess that they know Christ as their Savior, that they are Christian, they call it. Now, that would include all, kind, all form of Christendom. We're talking about Roman Catholicism. We're talking about um, uh, cults. We're talking about any, anything at all, as well as Bible-believing Christians. But think about the fact that in the 1040 window, less than 2% of the people profess any kind of Christianity. Catholicism, cults, anything at all, Bible-believing Christians, less than 2%. Now, again, I don't know, I don't know how many people in America are saved. Um, it's, not, it's not 75 or 80%. Would it be maybe 30%, 25%, 30%? I don't know. But think about this. I do know that, that if, if the rapture takes place tonight, if Jesus comes tonight and he could, if Jesus comes tonight, a lot of people are gone tomorrow morning in America. I mean, we wake up and America's in trouble. We've got, what, 25, 30% of our people have just disappeared. But if Jesus comes tonight in Bangkok, nobody notices anything happen. Less than 1% profess to be, to be a Christian in, in, in Thailand. I mean, 1%, 1%. In Bangladesh, uh, all over the 1040 window, people would wake up tomorrow morning and not know that anything happened at all because there are so few people that are saved. Now, not only are those people unevangelized, but they are unengaged. I want to give you some statistics tonight. And, and I'm going to tell you as I, I give these statistics, they're unverified I do not know how accurate these statistics are. Um, but I'm going to tell you where I got them. I got them from a book by the, by, by, by the name of a man by Claude Hickman. The title of the book is Living Your Life on Purpose. It's a good book, great book. I've enjoyed it very much. Living Your Life on Purpose, Claude Hickman. Let me give you statistics that he talks about as far as, as, far as missionaries and the, and the ratio of missionaries. And I, I, again, I don't know how accurate this is at all. But they're in the book. Uh, Living Your Life on Purpose by Claude Hickman. Number one, he said this. Iran has one missionary for every three million people. India has one missionary for every two million people. Vietnam has one missionary for every two million people. I, personally, I've been, I've been in those countries. I've not been in, 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 in Iran, but I've been, I've been in India. I've been many times in Vietnam. I doubt very seriously that, that the ratio is that high. But here's what he says. One for every three million, Iran. One for every two million, Vietnam, India. One for every two million, Vietnam and India as well. Then he says this. Now, notice the, the, the difference. Mexico, he says, has one missionary for every 2,300 people. Peru, one missionary for every 240 people. Brazil, one missionary for every 276 people. Again, I don't know, I don't know the statistics. I don't know how accurate they are. Maybe they're not accurate at all. And I'm not at all against going to Mexico or Peru or Brazil. In fact, our ministry just took on, a couple of months ago, we took on a man in, uh, in Venezuela uh, for support. We're helping to plant a church in Venezuela. So I'm not against that, against, against that at all. I'm simply trying to tell you the, I'm trying to show you the, the imbalance here. Whatever the, statistics, the, the accurate statistics are, there is a huge difference in, in the numbers of people that are going to certain countries and other countries. This 1040 window. The issue is not being lost. If a person dies and goes to hell, it doesn't matter where they lived before they died and went to hell, right? You're still in hell. I mean, if you live in Peru and you die and go to hell, you're still in hell. If you live in Stratford, Connecticut, and you die and go to hell, you're still in hell. But the difference is this. In Stratford, Connecticut, somebody is looking for you. There's a church that is searching for you. There are people that are praying for you. There is someone that is trying to lead you to Christ. Tomorrow morning, uh, we'll be going out, the men will be going out, knocking on doors and trying to lead people to Christ. There's somebody searching for you. 
We're talking about huge portions of the world where nobody is looking. Nobody is searching. The only thing worse than being lost is to be lost and have no one searching for you. No one is looking for you. No one cares. It means you could be born. You live your entire life. You die. You go to hell. And not one time has anybody ever even thought about you or tried to come to you. That's what we're talking about in great portions of the world. What do we have to do to develop a heart for the world? First thing, we have to look. We have to realize that they're there. We have to see them and understand that there are people that are lost on their way to hell. I was in a missions conference a few years ago in Portland, Oregon. And uh, there were some church planters. There was a church planter there that was going to go to a certain city in America. And here's what he said. And by the way, I'm for it. I'm for church planting in America. We need more churches in America. But here's what the man said. He, I had just come back, by the way, from, from, uh, from Thailand. And uh, I had just come back from Bangkok. And then from Thailand, I'd also been in Indonesia. I'd been in Jakarta and Bangkok, these huge cities, 10 to 15 million people. And he said this. He said, the city I'm going to in America has a million people. We have ten cities in America that have a million or more population. And he said, we're going to one of the biggest cities in America. And he said, there are already ten independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James preaching, Baptist, separated Baptist churches in that city. But wait a minute. He said, there are already ten there. I'll be number eleven. But, but wait a minute. He said, do the math. Do the math. He said, we've got a million people in this city. And he said, so, so you, could, you could drive from, for, 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 you have the independent fundamental Bible-believing King James uh, separated uh, Bible-believing church, Baptist church. He said, you can drive for, uh, for, for 100,000 people before you get the second one, and another 100,000 people before you get the third one. And he said, and 100,000 people for each one of them. He said, folks, we need another one. We need more. I was sitting on the platform. I agree, I agree with everything you said. We do need more in that city. I was sitting on the platform and I was thinking three days ago, I was in Jakarta, Indonesia. That great city of 11, 12, 14 million people. You could drive through Jakarta and we did. You can drive for for days. You don't see any kind of church. No independent Baptist church. No King James preaching church. No separated church. No Bible believing church. No soul winning church. No Calvary Chapel, no Lutheran Church, no Catholic Church. You drive for miles, days on end, all you see is mosques, Muslim mosques. We are talking about places on, the, on the, our planet where you can be born, again, as I said, you can be born, live your entire life and die and go to hell and never even see a Christian. If we're going to develop a heart for the world, what's the first thing we have to do? We have to look. We have to open our eyes and look. And if we do that, the next thing Jesus said is this. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 38. Jesus said, once you look, you begin to pray. Now that's what, that's what happens. When we see the need, when we see the Hopi tribe, we begin to pray for them. We begin to understand there are people there that, that have false religion, that have, that's the, their culture, and that they don't know Christ, and they have, don't have an opportunity to know Christ unless somebody goes to them. What did Jesus say to do? Once you look, then Jesus said this, verse 36, He saw the multitudes. He looked. He was moved with compassion. By the way, before Jesus moved the multitudes, the multitudes moved Him. Before He ever moved them, they, before they were moved by Him, He was moved by them. He was moved, the Bible says. Jesus was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. They were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So what did He do after He looked? Then Jesus said this, The harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore. Pray. 
Jesus said the first thing you do is you look. The second thing is you, when you begin to look and understand that there's a world out there on its way to hell, then you begin to pray. Pray. The answer to our lack of workers is prayer. Prayer moves the heart and the hand of God. Miracles happen as a result of prayer. People are saved. Lives are changed. Marriages are healed. Prodigals come back home. I mean, impossible situations become possible through prayer. Prayer. Let me, let me, let me give you just a couple of practical thoughts to help you with your prayer life. I'm going to give you two thoughts of your prayer life. Number one, have a set time to pray. Have a, if you want to have a prayer life that, 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 that really impacts you and others around you, number one, have a set time to pray. The psalmist said morning, noon, and evening. Would you consider setting, taking your, 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 your smartphone and setting a silent alarm for it to go off at 10.40 a.m. or 10.40 p.m. every day? And at 10.40 a.m., with, uh, with my wife and I, ours goes off at 10.40 a.m. And it's not, it's not, a, not, a, loud, it's not a, a, a noisy one, just, just a vibration. But at 10.40 a.m., pops up and says, pray for the 10.40 window. Uh, setting your, your clock for, so that you'd have it. But, 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 but first of all, have a set time to pray. My wife and I, for us, it's the morning. <laughs> David said morning, noon, and night. I say morning and night. I skip the noon. Other than say thank you for the food, you know, and uh, but 10:40. So mine would be morning 10:40 and and night. But but have a time to pray, a set time when you pray. The second thing I would say is this: number two, this is critical. Number one, have a set time that you pray. Number two, it's critical that you have a prayer list. Have a prayer list. I heard David Gibbs say years ago, "I have never known anyone with a powerful prayer life that didn't did not have a list." I was pastoring. And David Gibbs said, I have never known anyone with a powerful prayer life that did not have a prayer list. And I sat there in the congregation and realized, I don't have a prayer list. I don't have a list. I have a set time I pray, and I have it in my mind, but I don't have a prayer list. And I began to develop a prayer list. I keep mine. Now, you, you can put yours wherever you want. Mine is on, in my, on my smartphone, on my phone, in notes. And I can pull this up. And I've got my prayer list here. And I start off with, the, with my prayer list, and I've got it, I've got it right here. And so um, I've got the verses, I've got the Scripture, I've got the people that I'm praying for, um, I've got the things that I'm praying for. Get a prayer list. If you have a set time and you have a prayer list, it'll change your prayer life. But if we just say, I'm going to pray, and we don't have a... We, we intend to, but it doesn't happen. And we, and we you know... Get a prayer list. Get a set time. Number one is that we need to look. Number two is we need to pray. Number three, give. Now, I mentioned to you last night that I cannot tell you how much you should give. We're going to fill out these cards. We're going to, we're going to, we're, we're going to ask you to pray and ask God what He would have you to give. We'll fill out these cards tomorrow night or Wednesday night, whenever it is that we do it, or the following Sunday. And we'll, we'll, we'll turn these in. And by the way, you need to turn these in. Now, the reason pastors ask me to turn these in, you might think to yourself, well, well, there's no place for my name on it, so what difference does it make if I turn it in or not? Here's what difference it makes. The reason there's not a place for your name on it, as we said last night, it's because it is between you and God. It's a promise you're making to God, not to the church. But the church, you're giving this money to God through the church. They need this to make a budget. Every week, every week, every week of his life, I guarantee you, there are, there's somebody. Now, maybe one week goes by, we don't have anybody call. The next week, we'll have two or three. But at, at least once, a, at least 50 times a year, he has missionaries call him 
and say, Pastor, I'm a missionary to so-and-so or such-and-such place, and can we come in? Can you help me? Now, without these cards filled out, here's the reality. He has no idea if he can or not. How does he say yes or no if he doesn't have a clue what the budget's going to be? And so, for to be able to continue this, uh, these 53 missionaries that you're supporting, this $5,300 a month that you're putting out already, and then to be able to increase that, if, it, if it's going to be 6000 a month, he needs to know that by having, having this. So fill out this card. Um, put, it down on, put it down in print. Now, how much should you give? I don't know. Um, I cannot tell you how much you should give, whether we're talking about your general fund offering or your missions offering. But in the Old Testament, God asked his people to set aside the first 10%. Now, the New Testament does not give us a specific amount, although I do think it's a good spiritual discipline to work towards at least 10% of your income that is going to your church, and then over and above that, you're giving to missions. Somebody says, well, does the New Testament command tithing? Well, if I were to ask that question tonight, and I won't ask you to show a show of hands, I suspect if I were to say tonight, how many of you in this room, and there's a good crowd here tonight, how many of you in this room believe that tithing is something that is incumbent upon you as a New Testament Christian? Don't raise your hand. How many of you say, yes, it is? Raise your hand, okay? And then I said, okay, how many of you believe that that the the New Testament does not command tithing, but the New Testament encourages grace giving, and you determine how much you raise your hand? And I think probably half the crowd would raise their hand in a typical church. Yes, tithing is for today. Others would say, no, you can tithe. It's not for today. We're under grace, grace giving today. I suspect it would be about 50%. But let me tell you what I do think, though. I think that even though some of us would believe that, yes, we should tithe 10% as a minimum, and others would say, no, you, it, it's up, it's up to, to, to how God leads you. I do think this, though. I'm sure that all of us would agree that the Bible does not say you cannot tithe. Right? Now, some would say, hey, it's commanded. Some would say it's encouraged. Some would say it's up to you. But nobody would say, oh, you can't do it. The Bible says you cannot tithe in the New Testament. All of us would agree with that. Now, my wife and I, we have tithed for the entire 49 years of our marriage. And God has always blessed us for doing so. Or God has blessed us. Let me just say that. And uh, God has always met our needs. So I'm saying to you tonight that whatever the amount you're currently giving... You determine what you believe God wants you to do. And I think it's a good spiritual discipline to work towards that 10%. Either to start there or to work your way there. And, and again, I'm not saying it in a legalistic manner that, that you have to do it. And, uh, but I'm saying that, that the Bible definitely doesn't say you, can, you cannot do it. It would be a good thing to do. Now, may I say this about this card? Do not, please do not take what you're currently giving. Let's say, let's say you're giving 10% just for... For uh, just for illustra- illustration, so you're giving 10% of your income now. Don't take a portion of that 10% that you've been giving to the general fund and apply it to missions. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're going to hurt the local church by doing that. The missions money is new money over and above your current giving. Don't hinder the work of your local church. This local church has has to hold the ropes. One of the worst, worst things that can happen to missionaries is that we, we go to the field, we're counting on these local churches here in the States, and then we come back and the church is folded up. Or somewhere along the line the church has to drop the missionaries and drop everything because of the fact that the, the offerings have gone down in the church. So, so don't do that. 
So number one, take the time to look. Number two, how do we develop a, care, a love for the world, a heart for the world, care enough to pray? Number three, be willing to give. Number four, Mark sixteen fifteen, Jesus said, go. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Now, there are five commands in the New Testament, as I've said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. There are five commands to go. There are none to stay. None to stay. Some people say, well, you know, God hasn't called me to go. Well, give me your phone number. I'll call you. I mean, you have a command, right? I mean, no, look, I'm not saying everybody should go, but I am saying this. I'm saying that we should, t- we should stop making excuses for not going by saying we don't have a special call, a specific call. You have a specific command. If you have a command, why do you need to call? I think, I think more, more serious would be to say, Lord, uh, is it okay if I stay? God, you've told me to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, I believe that, that you could use me here in Stratford. I believe that right here is where I belong. God, I, I'm going to stay here, but, but if you want me to go, I'll go. So God, as, I, as I've said already, God is going to say to us, I want you to go, I want you to let go, or I want you to give so others can go. Those are our three options. Go, let go, let go of your kids, let go of your grandkids. Don't try to hold them back. One of the most difficult things for me, many of you know Matt and Rebecca Lindquist, or remember them from years ago. Um, when they were here, I th- <clears throat> I'm not even sure if they had children when they were here. Both the kids born in, New- in California, right? They, uh, they came back to, and worked, worked for me for uh, eight or ten years there at, in, in California and had two children. Matt was doing our music, doing a wonderful job with it. And I'll never forget one Easter, we were preparing for Easter. The choir was going to be singing uh, the song, Why Seek Ye the Living Among the Dead, <clears throat> a beautiful song. Matt was singing the lead. The choir was backing him up. Uh, choir practice before the Sunday morning service. I always would come in, uh, come in during choir practice and come in the side door and walk into the auditorium there. And, and I walked into the auditorium, kind of walked through the auditorium. And the choir was already up there. They were singing. Matt was, leading, was singing that song, Why, Why Seek Ye the Living Among the Dead. The choir is doing the backup. And right up in the front row, there were two little heads kind of lift up over the pew. My two grandkids, Matt and Becky's two children. Little Brooke was four years old, and uh, Bryce was about two. Bridget had not yet been born. She was born in China. They had already told me they were going to leave and go to China. And I, had, I, I, I told them to go. That's what God's called you to do, then go. But that wasn't in my heart. And my heart was, I don't, want, I don't want you to go. And if you do have to go, leave the grandkids behind. But I remember walking in the door, and he's singing, and there's two little, two little heads popped up over the pew there. Rook and Bryce are watching the choir. They don't see me. If they'd seen me, they would have jumped up and run over there, but I, they didn't. I did, I'm behind them. And I just stood there, and I looked at those two little heads, and I said, God, what, why, do, why do they have to go? And Matt was singing, Why seek ye the living among the dead? And the Holy Spirit said, That's why they've got to go. And you've got to let go. Don't try to talk them out of it. Don't try to get them to stay. Let them go. Because in China, 
There are people that are seeking the living among the dead. They're bowing to the dead altars. They're worshiping their dead gods. And they need to know that there's a living Savior. Let them go. Go, let go, give so others can go. God's going to ask that of all of us this week. When we're confronted with the commands of Jesus, the needs of the world, and the fact that every person will live eternally in either heaven or hell, when we're, con- when we're confronted with that fact, when we have a conference like this one and, 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 we, and, and we see the needs of the world and we understand the commands of Christ and we grasp that people will live eternally in heaven or hell and then we sit back and do nothing, I, I just can't help but ask why. Why would we do nothing when we're confronted with these facts? How can we sit in complacency and do nothing. Year after year. Do nothing. Open your Bible to Proverbs, if you would please, chapter 24. I want to close tonight with a, with a story that's a, a testimony of something that happened, uh, that happened in our life. I, I, I left my church after a 25-year ministry. And I started the ministry that we currently lead, and that was about six years ago now. The unusual thing about it was that I did it at the age when most people retire. I was 65 years old. Now, it was surprising to most of my friends. What surprised my friends that had known me for my entire Christian life and had known me for 40 years in California, my pastor friends, and and my, even my church members, it didn't surprise them that I had a heart for missions. That didn't surprise them. They'd known that. Our church had always been known as a missions. My, every church I've, I've pastored, I've started, we've always, we've always supported missionaries. We've always been big on missions. So they weren't surprised that, that, that I would have a heart for missions. What surprised them was that at the age of 65... After 25 years of, of, of building this church and getting to the point where it was, that I would leave, leave the church and move to Asia. It was the moving to China part. Not that I had a heart for missions. That wasn't su- what, what surprised people. What surprised them was that, that we packed up and moved. And, and, and we moved to China... And then from there, we, we would go into some of the poorest countries on the planet. And I was 65 years old. And it was like, why are you doing this? And a lot of people asked me that. I said, why, why, why are you doing this? The missions part I get, but, but why, why, would you, why would you live there? Why are you doing this? I'm going to give you a very simple but honest answer. Very simple, but very honest answer. The reason we did it is because I believe with all of my heart that we are doing right now what God had been preparing for us to do all of our lives. We're doing what God prepared us to do. As I approached the age of 65, I began to talk to my wife, and I, and I felt, for some reason, I felt like, I felt like that, 
I pictured life like a, like a, like a, 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 a quarter-mile track. Remember in high school, you've got to run four laps around that track? And I began to feel like, you know what? And in fact, I told my wife, I said, sweetheart, we've been, we've been three, th- three laps around the track. We've been three times around the track. We've got one more time around the track. We've got one more lap. Now, you look at me and you say, no, you've been like four and a half times at least, you know. <laughs> Be kind to an old man, will you? By the way, that was five years ago. Now, I probably have been four and a half times. But, but I felt like, I said, sweetheart, we've got one, we've got one more lap. We don't have two left. <laughs> There's four laps in my life, our lives, our service for God. We've already served three of them. We've got one left. We've got one opportunity. What does God want us to do for the last few years of our life? How can we best serve Him? Look at Proverbs chapter 24. And I came to the conclusion that what we're doing right now is the best thing we could possibly do for that last lap. In Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 11, the, the, the writer paints a picture for us. Look at the picture. In verse 11 he says, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death. Those that are ready to be slain. So the picture here is that someone has been drawn into death. They, 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 they're, they're, their time's up. All right? they, their, tickets, their tickets punched. They've been drawn to death. They're going to die. They're ready to be slain. So if they'll, they'll forbear to deliver them, the word forbear means you choose not to do it, right? I forbear. I'm not going to do it. So the picture is that somebody is going to die, a group of people are going to die, and you could help them. You could stop them, but you don't. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, those that are ready to be slain. I could keep you from dying, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let you die. Now here's the question. Why would somebody do that? Why would, why would we be looking at some uh, group of people that are ready to die? We have the ability to stop it, to help them, but we say, nah, I think I'll pass on this one. Let's go ahead and die. Why would we do that? When we started our first church in, in, as a young couple, many years ago in Redwood City, California, San Francisco Bay Area, one Saturday morning I was out soul one evening. At that time we had two children. We had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And uh, my wife was... Uh, was, uh, had, had a fire going in the fireplace. Unbeknownst to her, the, the embers had come up out of, the, out of the fireplace and they had gotten on the roof. And our roof was on fire. So here's my wife and two children, four-year-old, two-year-old. The, the smoke has not yet come down into the house. It's a Saturday morning. The house is on fire. She doesn't know it's on fire. I'm not at home. I'm out, I'm out visiting. She's home alone with the kids. My neighbor happened to come out from across the street, walk outside, and he looked up and he saw that the house was on fire. You know what my neighbor did? He immediately ran, ran across the street. He opened the door. He didn't knock. He ran into the house and he said, Hey, the, fire, the house is on fire. Get out. He starts screaming. My, my, my oldest daughter, four-year-old girl, was over here. She's, she's coloring. Um, my, my wife's in the other room where the fireplace is, the living room. My wife comes running in. Here's this, our neighbor screaming at her house saying, Get out of the house. It's on fire. He ran over the neighbor and he grabbed up the four-year-old in his arms. And then he, says to, he said to my wife, he said, he said, Is there anybody else in the house? Is there anybody else in the house? Becky had not yet been born, the one that you know. 
But Angie and Janelle were alive. And so, and so Gail ran in. She grabbed Janelle up out of, the, out of the, the crib. And he said, get out of the house now. It's on fire. They ran out of the house. They ran across the street and stood on the other side of the street as the house burned down. He called the fire department. The fire department came. And our house was destroyed. The house we were renting. Now let me ask you a question. Why wouldn't he do that? That was the right thing to do. I mean, literally, I could have come home that day and found out that my wife and children had died in a fire. But my neighbor saw what was going on. He ran across the street, opened the door, and began to scream, Get out of the house! It's on fire! Why would he not do that? What if my neighbor had just walked out, saw the house, said, Huh, look at that house on fire. You don't see that much in this, this, this neighborhood. Now my problem. Saturday morning, I think I'll go see if this cartoon's on. Go get another cup of coffee, read the paper. It's not my problem. Of course not. Proverbs 24:11. They see the people are going to die, and they do nothing. Thou forbear. Why would somebody do that? Look at verse 12. Here's why. Verse 12. If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not. You know what the excuse is? We didn't know. We didn't know. We could have helped them, but we didn't know they were going to die. Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? He that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? Shall not he render to every man according to his works? Perhaps tonight you can say, yeah, there's people dying and going to hell out there that have never heard of Jesus. But I didn't know. Maybe you could say that, but I can't say that. I cannot say, I cannot stand before God and say, you know me, Lord, you mean there were people that lived in villages where they were born, they lived their entire life, they died and went to hell and nobody ever even came to their village? Nobody even tried. Nobody ever prayed for them. Nobody ever tried to get a gospel tract to them. I cannot stand before God and say, I didn't know that. I do know. I've been to their villages. I've walked along their little dirt roads. I've seen their little shacks that they live in. I've looked into their eyes and seen their emptiness, their hopelessness. I've seen their little idols at the doors. Every door, a little golden idol. I've gone into their little shacks and seen their little God shelves where they have the little gods. On the, you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? From Thailand. I've seen them. I cannot stand before God and say, Lord, I didn't know. Why, 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 are, you, why are you doing this? I said to my friends, I really believe that this is what God has been preparing me for all of those years. All these years of ministry, God has been getting me ready to the point that I could do this ministry as my last one. So I want to ask you a question tonight. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? 
What has God created and prepared for you to do? Are you looking? Are you praying? Are you giving? Are you going? As you believe that God has equipped you to do so? What has God, what has God been preparing you for? Look, if you, if you say, well, you know, preacher, I'm doing everything that I believe God wants me to do and God has prepared me for this and I'm doing everything. Okay, good, good. Then, then we're, we're on the same page here. But I wonder if perhaps you could look into your heart and say, God, is there something more that you have prepared me for? Is there something more that you, is there some reason why you have blessed me financially? Is there some reason why you have given me the ability to be able to have a good reputation at my work or to have a good relationship with my neighbors? Is there some reason? Look, maybe God wants to change and realign your life in this missions conference. And maybe you're going to end up looking back at this missions conference and say it was at that missions conference at White Oak Baptist Church in 2021 that God changed my life. My whole focus was changed in that missions conference. A heart for the world. Our Father, I pray tonight that you take these simple thoughts and apply them to our hearts. Lord, I want to just tell you right now, I thank you. I thank you that you let me spend 25 years with those wonderful people at Liberty Baptist Church. And I thank you, God, that one day you said to me, it's time for you to go. I thank you that you prepared me to do what I'm doing. I thank you you prepared Ryan Thompson to take over that church and lead them for the next 25 years. And Father, I pray that this morning or this evening, perhaps there's somebody here tonight that would be willing to say, God, what have you been preparing me for? What is it that you want me to do from this point forward? Lord, maybe it's to pray more. Maybe something as simple as get that prayer list going. Maybe it's to give more. Maybe it's to go. Maybe it's to let go. Maybe it's to give so others can go. But Father, I pray that you'd help us to genuinely seek your will and your mind and your face and say, Lord, what is it that you want at this point in my life? Why, what have you prepared me for in your kingdom? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.